Oh, hi. Oh my gosh, hi, how are you? Gosh, you look really pregnant. I, uh, I, I guess I hadn't heard that you got married. Oh, well, congratulations, that's, that's wonderful. Uh, no, no, Michael and I, you know, we, um, we, we split up. Oh yeah, you know, I, uh, I look at it this way. At least now I have something in common with my parents. <laughs> so, so when are you due? Mm. Can I? <sighs> Babies. <laughs> wow. Shouldn't you be home? Like near a phone. Oh, you're working. Senior vice president of the whole company. Oh. So I, uh, I guess you're not still writing then. You are still writing then. Your second novel, huh? <laughs> what do you do on the weekends? I'm, I'm sure the blind children appreciate that. <laughs> well, I, I've got to go. Um, give my best to Russ and congratulations on the job. And the novel. And the baby. No, no, I, I really, I can't. I, uh, there's my bus. I, uh, I got to go throw myself under it. <laughs> Does it seem like there's a couple of categories of people in the world, one that are faced with severe limitations, severe obstacles, and the other that seem to have no obstacles whatsoever? Which of those two categories do you most closely identify with most days? Well, I'd like to present a third category. Those whom God works through in limitless ways because of their limitations. If you have your scriptures with you, turn with me to the sixth chapter of Mark. And we will begin a series that teaches us to follow Christ instead of merely believe in Him. And will teach us what happens when we do that. We will witness what happens when we do that, both as individuals and as a church. Now, the first verse of this chapter begins like this. And he, meaning Jesus, went out from there. Those are three very telling words. First of all, they form a pattern of ministry. Out means this about Jesus. He was never satisfied until he had told as many people or given to as many people or as resourced as many people as he could. He was always worried that someone hadn't gotten what they needed yet. That is the pattern of ministry, by the way. 
to have such a sensitivity to those who need yet what you have to offer. And then the Bible says, from. There is a disconnection as well as a potential connection. You have to leave the areas that are comfortable and those areas that are loving from. The, the memory verse this week says this, if anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. That denial really comes when, when we leave that which has been successful and go into that which is intimidating, which is exactly what happens between the chapters of 5 and 6 in the Gospel of Mark. You see, in the fifth chapter, Jesus is in Capernaum. And he has a very successful ministry. There's miracle after miracle. He meets with a great deal of faith. And he leaves that success to face what is ultimately very intimidating. The difference between the fifth and sixth chapter is the difference between facing faith and facing unfaith. Between facing those which would accept you and those that knew you a little bit too good to accept you. He went from success to intimidation. That was the direction of his ministry. It says, and he came to his hometown. I'll come back to that. And his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And the many listeners were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles. The Greek word here is dunamis. It's power. We get the word dynamite from it. Such miracles as these performed in his hand, at his hands. Is this not the carpenter? The son of Mary? And the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon had four brothers, half-brothers. Are not his sisters here with us? In other words, they're saying, wait a minute. This guy's a regular guy with a regular job. Wait a minute. He has a family. We know his family. He's got a regular family. He's got a regular life. He was regular in our city. And now he comes to us and pretends to deliver great spiritual truth to us. Now, he had just gotten out of the category they had for him. What happens when your categories are smashed? You get mad. You get mad. Read the next sentence. And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. Now, this is not original with Jesus. This is a Hebrew idiom. In other words, it is a saying of wisdom that has been around for ages, and Jesus is simply saying, man, that really applies right here. Those of you who take ministry for Christ seriously know that there's no more intimidating uh, place for ministry or no tougher place for ministry than in your family and to your good friends. Because the better people know you, the more they're reluctant to see you as some powerful spiritual person. 
Because they've got you in another category. The Bible goes on to say, and he could do no miracle there, except that he lay his hands upon a few sick people and healed them. This is just a parenthetical praise. This is not a, this is not a, 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 a center of the, of the sermon. But our job is never to convert the majority opinion of us. That is never our ministry. Our ministry is only to give to those who come to us for help. Whether that be few or many, that's our only responsibility. Now, let's go into this situation and see how it is directly linked to our situation. First of all, what is it like to be categorized in your hometown? (laughs) I know what it is to go to your home church and preach. Been there. Done that. Probably my, one of my first sermons was done at First Church Shelby, Ohio. I've told you this before, where women wore fruit on their hats and men wore pinstripes on their suits. It was a very formal place. And I cannot tell you how intimidated I was as a young man, first year in seminary, to climb up to the pulpit that I had always looked up to, literally up to, all of my Christian life. And look out to see my second grade teacher. And look out to see my high school football coach. And look out to see an old girlfriend. (laughs) And look out to see the minister that had preached to me all my Christian life. You talk about intimidating. Now, I can tell you something of what Jesus was feeling that day. I can't tell you exactly because I can tell you quite honestly, Jesus didn't have the past to overcome that I had to overcome. I'm sure their memories of Jesus wasn't like my hometown's memories of me. But I can tell you this, every instinct in you wants to pull back and please the crowd. Because those are your homies. Those are the people who you want to think of you in the most valuable way. All of you just wants to be nice and funny and pleasing and wise. And and Jesus didn't do any of that. As a matter of fact, he preached with such power, they got mad. Jesus didn't withhold a thing. Now, you've got to go into this scripture and you've got to say, Here they were, hearing all this power. Here they were exclaiming, where did this guy get this stuff? How is it that he preaches with such authority? How is it that that he's doing miracles for crying out loud? We see him. How is it that, 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 that this wisdom that we've never heard before, Why did that not say, this is great? Why did they say, this really makes me mad? I'll tell you why. Because categories are the way we don't have to change our lives. If we can just put things in the right categories, then we never have to face them personally. We're going through that right now as a nation. If we can just get that 
the categories. Well, what's private and what's public? If we can just put them in the right categories, then we're done with it. We don't have to face it. This mess that's happening in Washington, if we can just confine the mess to Washington, then we're done with it. If we can just say, our president has a problem, and not look very, very painfully at our own inclinations and our own temptations. If we can just categorize it, then we're done with it. You see, categories are a very significant safety device. And if we can just stereotype people, if we can just keep them in their categories, then we don't have to get involved and we don't have to change. And we don't have to face things about ourselves. We can be done with it. That's why so many people want him to, be, to resign. And so many people want him just to drop it. Oh, just drop it. Figure I saw the other day, you see, oh, that's just, whatever. You know? You know what that's French for? I don't want to deal with it. I was sitting with Beck. I said, I listened to one of those stats. How many people wanted him to resign? I wanted to be, how many people wanted this thing resolved immediately? And I said, how can this be? This is such a great chance to improve as a nation. It's such a great chance to look at our own lives. It's such a great. And Beck said, Hunter, that's how people parent. When the going gets rough, they just say, whatever. I can't deal with it anymore. Let's just drop it. But just like it's going to happen to your kids if you're that kind of parent, it's going to happen to our nation if we're that kind of citizen. If we don't face these problems, if we don't look in our hearts, the years to come will be even more problematic than the present. You see, it's a chance to change. It's a chance to go through the painful process of self-examination. But even more than that, you've got to recognize this power of categories and how we can't see the power of God right in front of us. The power of God that is right in our midst. I loved what the, what the uh, curriculum had this week. I, I always read the adult and the kids uh, and the students and the kids. I, lo- I love them all. So I just I read, read, read uh, the thing every day. And, and in the kids one, it was discussing how they couldn't recognize Jesus for, for who he was. And it said, list the superheroes that you know that disguise themselves by wearing regular clothes. I thought that was pretty good. As a matter of fact, it brought back to me a frustration I've always had. I've always been frustrated with the people around Superman. How could they miss this? I mean, you've got you, you to be kidding for crying out loud. Guy puts a pair of glasses on, they go, where'd he go? What's up with that? I mean, from the time I was little, and I watched Superman on black and white TV. Most of you saw the original Superman, who, by the way, was grossly out of shape. Who cast this guy? I mean, he'd start everything, you know, go like, you know, and his paunch was like hanging over his tights for crying out loud. I'm going, what's up with that? Steve Reeves is around, but no, he goes, this little fat thing. But anyhow, now I can see it. It's understandable to me. If the first time Superman flies in, you know, you've never seen him before, and this guy flies in, got a big red S, and red and blue tights. I can understand how that would be all you could remember. You know? (laughs) What do he look like? Big red S, red and blue tights, all I can remember. (laughs) But you got to wonder, you know, he comes in a half a dozen times. you got to look at his face here. 
Now, now, honestly, when you put on a pair of glasses, do you walk out in public and people go, where'd you go? <laughs> you know, I know someone looks kind of like, no, couldn't be, couldn't be. I mean, when you change clothes, do people not know who you are? I mean, you, you got to say, okay, when Superman's there, Clark Kent's not. When Clark Kent's there, Superman's not. Figure it out. <laughs> but it was the look that always killed me. You know, especially when Duluth was with his glasses all the time. You'd think somebody would go, whoa, I know who you... No. The whole disguise was postured on the possibility that people were so strong in their categorical thinking that they couldn't possibly recognize the power right in front of them. And I want to tell you something. It's true. It's why people don't recognize the God that's in you. It's why you don't recognize the God in yourself. It's why we fail to understand the potential that's in us. You know why? Because we have this power in some unlimited package instead of just in regular clothes. But God decided before he began history that his power he would put in a limited capacity, in a limited venue, in a limited container. That was his plan, not the default plan. I don't know how many of you have seen, uh, just I think it came out this weekend, Simon Birch, a movie. Many of you have seen it advertised. It's about this little guy, 12 years old, who was born with a deformity. And the deformity, I, I don't know exactly uh, what the medical name for it is, but he is stunted in his growth. And this little 12-year-old boy is absolutely convinced that God has a plan for his life. And that plan includes the way he was made. That plan includes him being exactly perfect and God did not make a mistake when he made him that way. Now, the movie's kind of cute and it's kind of gross because it's a regular little boy. Regular little boy. And he does cute stuff and he does gross stuff. But the point that is his unshakable faith all through the movie is that God didn't make a mistake. When he made me like I am. He made me limited like I am. Because he was going to use my limitation. And all through the movie people are looking at him and saying, well that's fine. If that's the way you can overcome your obstacle, that's fine. If that's the way you can make yourself feel better, that's fine. And I'm sure God can bring good out of bad. He said, no you're not getting it. He didn't make a mistake with me. How many of you? think that God didn't make a mistake when he made you exactly like you are. He made you on purpose. And he even made your limitations on pur purpose. And let me tell you why. Because his strength is made perfect in our weakness. What gives praise to God? What, what is the ultimate heroism in giving is it because it comes from such plenty? John Dahl remembers when he was a little boy. 
It was 1925, and it was Christmas Eve. And John Dahl and his brother lived with his mother, and they were very poor. Many of us grew up in poor families, and we can identify with what I'm about to say to you. Maybe we weren't as poor as this little boy. He said, I was so young that I had to to go to work with my mother. Jobs were scarce, and money was more scarce. And I remember this particular Christmas Eve. My mother was a scrub woman in a building for 25 cents an hour. And I can remember squatting down and watching her do her work. I can remember looking at her hands and how swollen they were and how rough. I can remember how tired she was. And I can remember at the end of her shift how we walked out of the building. It was so cold that night. She had gotten paid $2.25 for a nine-hour day. Plus, because it was Christmas Eve, she got a can of tomato juice or a jar of tomato juice. And I can remember her digging through her purse for the 10 cents it would cost for both of us to ride the streetcar. And I can remember getting on. It was so cold, but I can remember holding her hand. Her hand was so rough, it almost cut mine. But it felt so good. And as we were going home to our flat, we passed by this huge department store. And I can remember all of the people coming out. Packages in their arms, smiling. That was okay with me. I had gotten used to not expecting anything. But I looked at my mom. Tears were coming down her eyes. Well, we got off the streetcar. And I can remember Nick the barber, by where we lived, used to sell Christmas trees. And always on Christmas Eve, by this time, the trees were sold out, as they were this night. My mom stopped, though, for a minute and dropped my hand and started picking up little branches that were left over that had fallen off the trees. And we proceeded up to our flat. We walked in. It was very cold. We had one stove that lit, that heated just a couple of rooms. My brother and I, every day would go out and we'd go along the railroad tracks and pick up the coal that had fallen off the cars and anything else that was burnable so that we could have something for the stove. And I walked in and my brother Ned was there. He was reading Boy's Life. Remember that magazine, Boy's Life? And we talked for a little while and we went to bed. Every night I'd sleep with my mom just so that we could both keep warm. And I would wake up several nights, or several times during the night, because there was traffic going by all the time. But it was no trouble for me to go back to sleep. This night, however, I woke up, and my mom wasn't there. He said, I got very scared. He thought to himself, she's finally gone. The years of trying to provide for us. She finally just couldn't take it anymore. And she's left us. And I remember that I was so scared, I couldn't get out of bed to go look. But I heard a sound from the kitchen. It was kind of a grinding sound. So 
Finally, I got up the courage, and I put a blanket over me. And I went into the doorway of the kitchen, and I saw my mom's form. It was bundled up in a blanket, and I could see her breath as I could see my own. She had the broom, our broom. And she had a broken knife. And with this knife, she was grinding holes in the handle of the broom. And when she got a hole deep enough, she reached down and picked up one of those evergreen branches that she'd picked up and stuck it in the hole. She was building us a Christmas tree. And I remember looking down at her feet, and there was this little can of red paint. And laying on the floor were all of these freshly painted junk toys. I mean, there was a fire engine, and it was all red, and that was good, because fire engines are supposed to be red. And it didn't have all the wheels, but it was pretty. And, and, and there was a train, and his caboose was all bent up. Beautiful red. And there was a jack-in-the-box. didn't have anything on the spring. Beautiful red, but there was a doll, a doll's head that my mom had found that she was going to put on the spring. And I remember going back to bed thinking how much my my mom loved me. Now let me ask you something here. Where is the power in that scene? The power doesn't come from the fact that the woman had so much to give. The power comes from the fact she didn't have anything, but she found a way to give anyway. Do you see when God calls you into ministry? And when you say to him, I'm not adequate for ministry, God says, I know. That's the point. That's the power. When you say to him, I can't do this thing. I don't know scripture very good. God says, precisely. That's why I'm going to use you. When you say to him, you want me to comfort this person over here? I'm hanging on by a thread emotionally myself. God says, precisely. Because in your limitation, you're going to see what I'm going to do. You understand, he says, my boy Jesus. You understand? That all of the resource of the universe was in a regular working person. You understand? You understand what I did with him? You understand that all his life he was a carpenter. The Greek word is tekton. It means simply one who works with their hands. Has a regular job. That's all he was, was a carpenter. But when he went into the ministry... He didn't leave the mentality of being a carpenter. You see, all of his life, he made plows and yokes. So that when he went into the ministry, he would say things like, He who sets his hand to the plow and looks back is not worthy of the kingdom of God. And his words had authority because all his life he made plows. 
And all his life he watched farmers. And they knew it. And because he was one of them, he had authority. All his life he made yokes. So when he said to them, take my yoke on you and learn from me, it had power because he had watched the farmers, he had watched the animals all his life. He used what he did in his work to proclaim my glory and my authority. Do you understand that what you do every day is the ministry? That's the power. You've got the stage. You're one of them. You're out there. That's why I call you. I know you don't feel adequate. You're not. I am. When I look at what he's going to demand of this church, it's way beyond what we can ever give. And I argue with him. I say, God... We are not a cathedral church. We're a stinking roller rink. <laughs> and he says, precisely. I say to him, we don't have years of proud tradition. We, we, we're, we're mostly young. We don't know what we're doing. He says, exactly. I said, we've grown so fast. We don't even know what we're doing here, let alone do anybody good out there. He says, I know. It's that limitation that I'm going to use. You see, God not only outfits people for his ministry. He also outfits times for the ministry. Back in this day, God, when he was going to start a huge new movement, had preset the communications device of the day. You see, with the Pax Romana, he had built a web of roads that connected the entire known world so that everybody was connected to everybody else. In the old days, not only was everybody connected, but there were different points at which believers would gather. So that when God began this movement, there was a communication system and the believers would find out about it quickly. Of course, that was the old days. Unless they're the new days too. In the old days... It would have been foolish to depend upon the ways of the culture to further the gospel. Because the culture back then believed in so many gods and were so superstitious that they were beyond using for the purpose of the gospel. Either that or the culture believed in no gods whatsoever, just the power of man, in which case they were secular. Of course, that was the old days, unless they're the new days, too. In the old days, you can read in this same chapter about 
the hopelessness of relying upon a political leader for any help. As a matter of fact, the political leader in this chapter had done something that had made him so ashamed, that had made him so frightened of the consequences, that he became paranoid, and his wife along with him. Of course, that was the old days. The wonderful irony is that he was never so close to the one who could forgive and cleanse and make him brand new. And he didn't have thousands of Christians praying for him like our president does. In the old days, the ones with authority were the experts. Whenever you wanted somebody to speak with authority, you brought in an expert. Of course, those were the old days. But God said, I don't want to limit the movement to the experts. And so therefore, not only will I make my son the power of the universe, the only source of salvation, severely limited in one person, not only will I make him a regular person in a regular disguise, But all of the regular people I call to do the ministry, I'm going to make them regular too. And so this regular person called fishermen, government workers, and husband and wife teams, Aquila and Priscilla, and businesswomen, Lydia, regular people. Of course, that was the old days. Unless it's the new days, too. In the old days, when God was getting ready for a mighty movement, he sent Jesus to a congregation that thought they already knew him. And when Jesus entered with a power that they had not anticipated... They had a decision to make. Will we, for the sake of our comfort, proceed as an ordinary congregation? Or will we give up our comfort and proceed into an intimidating ministry following Christ wherever he goes? Of course, that was the old days. Pray with me. God, thank you for sending Jesus here in our midst. Thank you, God, that we have the kind of limitations that we do because we know if we in our own strength confide, our striving will be losing. But thank you, God, that you have given us a more wonderful alternative, and that is to... Be glad that you have limited us in the ways that you have so that we need you in the ways that we do. And God, we pray that many will be astonished this morning, but not angry. Many will be astonished at what you're going to do with their lives 
and they will know that even if it is beyond them, it is not beyond you. In Jesus' name.